This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Care, The Highest Stage of Capitalism by Pramila Nadasan. In this eye-opening reckoning with the care economy, scholar Pramila Nadasan traces its logic and history showing that it's an institutionalized, hierarchical system in which some people's pain translates into other people's profit. As Sarah Jaffe puts it, in clear and concise prose, Nadasan takes apart the care industrial complex that has emerged like the military and prison industrial complexes before it to wring the last drops of profit from the lives and deaths of working people an absolutely necessary intervention in the most important political debate of our times. Find CARE, the highest stage of capitalism, at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today's episode is with Richard Seymour, one of the few people I know who can speak very intelligently about pretty much everything. This is the first of a two-part interview reanalyzing a general political conjuncture that has radically changed over the past month plus and continues to change rapidly every day. This episode is about Palestine, but unlike my recent episodes on Palestine with Noura Arakat and Ariel Angel and with Tarek Bakoni, this one is about the politics of what's happening in Palestine and how they're reverberating through the American and British political systems and then throughout the entire world system. Before we get this podcast started, please step up to support The Dig with a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. You should support us because... Depending on how much you give and where you live, we will send you a thank you gift in the mail, a mug, a tote bag, a book, or books. We also send all contributors our excellent newsletter by email. You can also check that out, though, along with our vast archives at thedigradio.com. But the reason you should really contribute to The Dig is because The Dig is a unique political education project. We provide the sort of ruthlessly in-depth analysis of everything to a broad global left-wing audience of organizers, political leaders, and intellectuals in a way that no other Anglophone podcast does. And we can put out every episode with no paywall so that every single person who wants to listen can do so for free, even if they can't afford to contribute, because those of you who can afford to contribute make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. If you can afford to contribute, do so now. That's patreon.com slash the dig. Thanks. And here's Richard Seymour, a London-based writer, founding editor of Salvage Magazine, and the author of The Twittering Machine, The Disenchanted Earth, and forthcoming Disaster Nationalism. Richard Seymour, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you for having me. I can't count the number of interviews I've conducted where the discussion has veered into some version of how can we make the American left a more internationalist left? And I'm not sure what these conversations look like in the UK, but but in the case of The Dig, often me and my guests would 
despair at the lack of internationalism, even as we found many good explanations as to why today's left was much less internationalist than lefts of the past. But now we see, and and I'm speaking of the U.S. left here, I don't know how this compares as well in Europe, but in the U.S. we're seeing the most internationalist protest movement in my conscious lifetime. It's far more internationalist, really, than the American anti-Iraq war movement, for example, because it really has this throwback third-worldist flavor. And to to clarify, I mean throwback third-worldist flavor in in a very positive way. What do you make of what's happening right now in terms of this mass response against Israel? And then why is it Palestine that's the issue that's finally brought this internationalist moment about? Well, it seems to me that there are a number of things. I mean, first of all, it was very clear that for a long time, people were too busy with uh, battles with their own domestic ruling classes. And I think that was a product of the credit crunch the austerity measures. I know you didn't have proper austerity in the US, but certainly at a state level, there was lots of austerity. Um, And God, what is there to cut uh, in in the American welfare state such as it exists? But I I think that I had hoped for a long time that climate change would be the issue around which a global consciousness, a planetary consciousness would be formed. But to be frank with you, I'm not at all displeased that it's uh, Palestine, though it's um, devastating that it's taken a genocide to uh, trigger that. As to why, I have wondered about this from the other side, um, which is why is Palestine the locus of this global madness where all the rules that ordinarily apply no longer apply, where liberal internationalists, so-called, like Biden, Give, suspend the rules. You know, the the in the past, if a government was committing genocide or even you know uh, plausibly engaging in massacres that could be construed as genocide, I think the U.S. would have been a bit more reticent, even if it was an ally. I don't know. I can't say for sure if that would be the case if it was the Israeli government doing it. But I know that, for example, when the Gujarat uh, pogrom happened. Uh, even the Bush administration was forced to suspend uh, or revoke Narendra Modi's visa. Right. Um, and this was, you know, like it, it was, we're going to war for humanity, for liberalism, for human rights, uh, also for, you know, domestic security, rail politic, et cetera, et cetera. But there was a basic liberal understanding of those wars. And we can't have our allies engaging in this kind of behavior because that's not what we're fighting for. We're fighting for uh, neoliberal globalization, certain forms of statecraft, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And that's gone now. I mean, I think that's been dying for a long, long time. Um, And obviously the election of Trump and uh, Bolsonaro and Narendra Modi and Duterte um, and Orban and all the rest of them are decisive punctuating moments in that, such that obviously Biden gets in, has no problem with Duterte and his successor, um, Marcos Jr., no problem with Narendra Modi, plenty of uh, nuptials with that fellow, just like under the uh, Trump administration. Anyway, so the, the liberal internationalism has been dying on the one side. On the other side of it, Palestine seems to be, for some reason, for historical and psychological reasons that aren't really to do with the Palestinians, has become the symptom of the world system, such that all the normal rules, it's, it's like the navel of the world system where all, all the ordinary rules disappear. 
and uh, you see uh, liberal or even not liberal, but uh, let's say moderate conservative politicians, centre-right politicians starting to sound like fascists. And I, I think that this has something to do with obviously the centrality of Israel to imperialist uh, politics, the imperialist world system. However, even on that reading, it would be very hard to defend what Biden is doing as legitimate real politic in this sense that I know that there is no single national, uh, incorrigible national interest, right? I'm aware that interests are always constructed and in relation to certain class interests, and uh, in relation to certain ideologies and uh, broader sort of fantasies. But with regard to what uh, Biden is doing here, he's reversing uh, whatever progress he has made, you know, withdrawing from Afghanistan and focusing, uh, you know, withdrawing basically from the Middle East as well. You know, that was the whole normalization process with uh, Saudi Arabia to allow Israel and Saudi Arabia and their allies to manage the Middle East for the US while they got on with the business of competing with China. Ukraine was already, you could say, a step backward in that respect, but you could say, also see it as uh, relatively low cost from the point of view of the American ruling class, you know, degrade Russia on the cheap um, while pursuing this Cold War with China. But this now brings American force and American power right back into the Middle East into the heart of a potentially adventurous war. Uh, I'm, I'm saying here when uh, they've got uh, aircraft carriers and ships going into the Mediterranean, I believe one of them armed with nuclear weapons, warheads to threaten Hezbollah and Iran, and you know any other uh, government or movement that wishes to threaten the state of Israel. They're pulling themselves back into a, a situation which I think the Pentagon has been trying to get out of for some time. So I think that there are historical and imperialist reasons, but I think there must be a, a, a certain psychological rationale too. I mean, one can speculate about the way in which um, the imagination of whiteness has been reorganized in the aftermath of the Holocaust and the way in which there has been a certain um, reconfiguration of it as Judeo-Christian rather than just Christian civilization. And as uh, one in which uh, Jews may be admitted, provided they're prepared to be a kind of militarized nationalist subject. So there's that aspect of it. And then I think, do they look at this attack in Israel and take it personally? Does the American ruling class feel personally affronted by what has taken place? In other words, are the connections that have been built up through years of supporting Israel and through years of just transnational connections, not just you know in terms of investment, military weapons, money, etc., but people moving to Israel, moving back and forth and so on, has that built up certain uh, transnational connections, imaginary relations for parts of the American bourgeoisie where they just basically see Israel as an outpost of the United States? which in some crucial respects it is. Honestly, these are speculations because I can't make sense of it from any other point of view because none of this can be made sense of um, in any rational sense. So at some point you have to bring in, I think, something like the unconscious. At some point you have to bring in fantasy. Honestly, I don't know um, why Palestine has become the symptom of the world, but I think for that reason, because of the sheer irrationality of what is happening, because of people's awareness, uh, which has been built up over many decades of what's been done to the Palestinians, 
And I think also kind of crucial here is that um, younger generations of Jewish Americans um, have decisively broken with Israel. I mean, I don't want to overstate this. Probably uh, there is still some work to be done there, but it's extremely significant. Oh yeah, I mean, if you watch, um, if you, I don't know if you do TikTok, uh, Daniel, but uh, <laughs> I, I've seen lots of young Jewish Americans taken to TikTok to educate people about Palestine, about the lie of Zionism, about the fact that the birthright trip is propaganda, and, uh, you know, bringing up uh, historians like Rashid Khalidi. I mean, it's it's insane. There's hundreds and hundreds of people doing this educational work. And that wouldn't have happened, I don't think that would have happened five years ago, let alone a generation ago. So that's a big shift. It's not quite the same in the United Kingdom, but uh, there there is a, a distinctive... Um, Jewish presence, uh, you know, organizing. And I think that it had it been another Israeli government uh, of a more centrist variety that had not been, uh, you know, more or less openly trolling the world, say, uh, with their, their fake warnings about Iran or their fake maps in which Israel occupies the whole territory or um, the uh, constant um, settlements and pogroms, I mean, not forgetting that Hawara made a significant impact on international consciousness, even causing certain liberal Israelis to um, say, what are we becoming? You know, um, I think that some of that has shifted public consciousness. But let's also not forget that we're three years away from Black Lives Matter. And that was the biggest protest movement America has ever seen. I know it's, uh, you know, like all recent protest movements, it's relatively short-lived in terms of the actual uh, duration of mobilization, but it was massive. And uh, I think it changed uh, consciousness, and uh, particularly among younger people, in a very important way, broke some of the um, libidinal attachment to the consolations of whiteness, the wages of whiteness, as Du Bois would have put it. And uh, I think that that means that when you look at uh, Israel-Palestine, you're more likely to be conscious of the racial aspect of it um, and the colonial aspect of it. So there might be an element of that, but be honest with you, um, uh, and you know, uh, with all due respect to your question, I don't know the answer. Um, <laughs> these are speculations, but I think I haven't really hit the nail on the head yet. I definitely think one major thing that's changed, as you just pointed out and many people have commented, I think it's absolutely correct that Black Lives Matter that that movement is just fundamentally attuned a generation of young people to situations where where people are being oppressed. And there's no degree of propaganda aimed at mystifying that that can dissuade people from seeing obvious situations of, of oppression. I think that's definitely true. But I also, I think it's probably also about the past two decades of history in terms of like what the US has been up to on the world stage. Do you do you think that the the invocation now of we must destroy the terrorists by any means necessary that that comes across differently differently after two decades of the US and its and its allies fighting this just disastrous failing on its own terms full of blowback global so-called war on terror do you think that that this experience has made people more skeptical? Hundred percent, yeah. Um, and I mean, uh, the fact that this comes a couple of years after Biden had to withdraw from Afghanistan, 
I, I remember uh, recently someone um, making a point in defense of Israel. Imagine if America had not responded to 9-11 by invading Afghanistan. Well, imagine the Taliban might be in charge, you know. I mean, they, they, they spent 20 years trying to control that country in quite brutal ways, destroying crops, destroying, uh, obviously, bombing wedding ceremonies, uh, killing thousands, tens of thousands of people. I don't know what the total figure is for Afghanistan. And obviously in, in Iraq, they um, oversaw a civil war, which uh, along with the bombings and the destruction of cities killed at least a million people, probably more, and then bred ISIS. And we've had all the wars uh, that, I mean, it would be hard to find a recent American war that's actually gone well. I mean, in Libya, for example, what resulted, that should have been a pretty straightforward venture because Gaddafi was obviously hated. There was a liberal middle-class wing of the revolution that would have been pro-American. To pilot them into power and keep them in power should have been relatively straightforward from an American point of view. Instead, what uh, we saw was, um, you know, uh, civil war and uh, uh, mass bloodshed and ISIS getting a foothold there. It wouldn't just be a question of uh, imperial decline, though that is inevitably a part of it. Um, and obviously the rise of selfific nationalism of an ethnic variety has something to do with imperial decline, at least in the sort of imperialist core. I think elsewhere it has to do with the dilemmas of uh, upper middle income countries finding themselves uh, blocked to further development like India, uh, Brazil, the Philippines and so on. And so what they propose is a kind of muscular national capitalism. That's what Trump promised and so on. So yes, I think imperial decline, um, the failure of recent wars, but fundamentally changing ideas as regards what is acceptable uh, with regard to race, um, with regard to domination on, uh, along the axes of oppression, um, fundamentally changing values. I remember um, a few years ago, uh, you would get these polls come out saying that young people were actually more right-wing than we assumed, that when you asked them about the welfare state, they didn't really have much investment in it, they didn't have much investment in public services, but they were pretty liberal. Now, as it turns out, um, younger generations... As a whole, I mean, this is just a trend because there's a pretty right-wing constituency among young people like alt-right, but as a whole tend to be uh, open, much more open to left-wing solutions and left-wing leadership. But the point about the liberalization of social values, which I think emanates from, apart from the, you know, uh, the fact that more and more people are going through higher education, and that kind of requires a degree of critical thinking that cuts through deference and passivity. Um, I'm not saying that higher education is necessarily going to lead you to radical conclusions. God knows uh, America's um, liberal establishment is proof of that. But the, you know, the, the, the fact is it's a different kind of education that you get uh, than you get at elementary or high school level. And uh, that's one part of it, breaking down authoritarian values, breaking down relations of deference. Another part of it is modern corporations are designed, you know, the kind of work that people do often involves uh, the provision of services or effective labor, which requires getting along with people, requires tolerating difference. It produces different kinds of subjectivity, I think. I suppose the fact that we now live in a a system of uh, international telecontinents uh, generated by social media, the social industry, as I call it. Um, cybernetic capitalism has generated different relations to the other. 
Um, this means that um, where we see race politics succeeding, it's often quite innovative. Because, you know, it, like Trump, for example, um, could appeal to a section of um, the black electorate and uh, Hispanic electorate, for example, along the lines of uh, the politics of racial despair, which uh, Corey Robin writes about in his uh, excellent book uh, on uh, the Supreme Court judge Clarence Thomas, and along the lines of black capitalism. Um, and in this UK situation, there's a similar thing where we've got a government which uh, has, it's a very, very right-wing government. It's conservative. It has a very high number of uh, black and Asian sort of people in the cabinet. They're often the most reactionary. Our Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, is just the most disastrous politician we've ever had. She's farther to the right. I mean, I really think she belongs to the far right. The only difference is she wouldn't be the one leading the lynch mobs. And uh, But they are pushing a version of race politics which uh, pivots not on uh, the idea, uh, you know, the traditional ideas of whiteness, but rather on who gets to be a citizen and what, uh, what is the axis of resentment. So playing with uh, strategies of resentment, um, wherein there's an idea that a certain kind of black conservative subjectivity can be incorporated into Britishness, as long as you accept capitalism, as long as you accept the rules of the game, as long as you don't complain about police violence and all the rest of it. But uh, the so basically what I'm saying is that race making is much more ductile and subtle than it has been. So that's, you know, one side of it. So I think that for broader consciousness, the old structures are much weaker than they have been for a long, long time. What hasn't yet been developed and what may be developed out of this is a coherent, uh, let's say, internationalist or planetary consciousness. You know, this is just a, a, a tripping point, an instigating point where those kinds of uh, consciousnesses can be forged. People are learning for the first time because of this war what Zionism is and what imperialism is and what the history of uh, Palestine is. And I think because of the you know, the mores of younger people, which you see on the internet, the idea that um, of epistemic justice is very important. You have to pay attention to what people who aren't white think and feel about the world. You can't discredit it in, you know, the usual manner. And if you do, you can be quite easily ostracized, um, quite rightly. And I think that that's why uh, the right is very panicked and uh, defensive and why it's uh, radicalizing and polarizing to the far right. So um, maybe those are some of the coordinates of the situation. But again, it just feels like a very open-ended uh, context um, in which the answers um, probably are not very certain. This is, this is far from the first time that anti-colonial politics has played a central role in shaping an international left. As Marx put it, quote, the task of the international everywhere is to put the conflict between England and Ireland in the foreground and everywhere to side openly with Ireland in order, quote, to make the English workers realize that for them, the national emancipation of Ireland is not a question of abstract justice or humanitarian sentiment, but the first condition of their own social emancipation. Throughout history, the left has prioritized supporting revolutionary anti-colonial struggles throughout Asia, Africa, the Americas. In recent weeks, I think amongst the most remarkable of many remarkable expressions of solidarity 
has been what we've seen from Irish political leaders who have been incredibly supportive of the Palestinian struggle, especially compared to other governments across Europe. It's a solidarity, I think, that really poignantly stretches from the land where English colonialism was born in Europe to the land where a final settler colony was created under Britain's imperial auspices. Why have these national liberation struggles in other places rather than issues that are straightforwardly domestic class questions? Why have they so long been so crucial to socialist, left-wing, labor, emancipatory politics? I mean, first and foremost, I think that the national form has been the form in which democratic uh, aspirations have occurred for historical reasons. I mean, it may be that there's some intrinsic logic in capitalism that necessitates that. But setting that aside, for historical reasons, the nation state has been the form in which the idea of uh, popular rule has um, uh, been concretized. Um, so, you know, we can talk about um, the national struggles of the 19th century in Europe, Germany, Italy, and so on. These were largely democratic struggles. They obviously always, always had their dark side already at that point. Anti-Semitism, racism, chauvinism, even colonialism. That brings us to the second aspect, which of course is the imperialist aspect. You know, there's a difference between, for example, in this context, supporting Israeli nationalism and supporting Palestinian nationalism. Concretely, they're extremely different types of struggle. Um, one is democratic and universalist and would seek to, uh, I mean, uh, James Zogby, the pollster, has uh, carried out surveys in both Israel and Palestine, asking them what they would favor, and pluralities uh, currently favor a, a sort of one-state solution. But when Israelis are asked what that means, that means no Palestinians, get them all out. And when Palestinians are asked what that means, that means uh, secular democratic state, everybody having equal rights, one person, one vote, all of that sort of stuff. So concretely, imperialism adds a different dimension. But then obviously, when you look closely at what this is, it's not just a, a moral stance, though I think that's uh, important. Um, it's that there is something of yours at stake in this struggle because the imperialist structure of your state, even if you're not, for example, if you live in England in the 19th century, um, you might not perceive a direct interest in liberating Ireland. In fact, you might believe that you get some benefit out of the uh, subjugation of Ireland. Marx's analysis says, no, that's not, that's not correct even if you were justified in taking that cynical, narrow view of interest, when you look at it, the structure of your own ruling class and its state, the way in which it oppresses and exploits you, is imperialist. It depends upon that structure of imperialism. And in fact, if you look at England in the 19th century, the culture of Toryism, whereby they secured the dominance of at that point, the most corrupt sectors, sectors of capital, the Tories were called the Brewers' Party at that point, was precisely through imperialist nationalism. So national liberation is not, um, I think, the same thing as uh, acceding to nationalism. There has always been an imminent critique of nationalism within anti-colonial movements um, for good reasons. Nonetheless, 
you can't even begin to make a start until you've broken the back of uh, imperialist rule. And obviously, Israel's control of the Palestinians is a very specific and distinctive and uh, one might say anachronistic form of imperialist rule, the settler colonial dynamic. I don't know if there's any other state where that is still the dynamic today, even states that were formed in a settler colonial fashion. But the necessity of relating to the Palestinian struggle and the fact that people feel it so personally and so urgently across the world uh, has to do with the ways in which a configuration or constellation of ruling class power all over the world linked to the oligarchies, the ruling class oligarchies that uh, rule our politics, uh, linked to the structures of property, the sort of legacy neoliberalism, if you like, it is uh, backed up behind this mechanism of repression. And also, you know, the uh, authoritarian direction of our national politics, wherever we happen to be, uh, is tied up with the authoritarianism um, and irrationalism of the Israeli state. Um, just one final observation on that issue. W when you notice that um, Israeli politicians appear to be trolling us, you know, when they they say, oh, we didn't bomb a hospital. We've got the footage right there. Or there's no humanitarian crisis, repeatedly denying there's a humanitarian crisis in Gaza, giving no good logical reasons for that. Or when they permit their soldiers to write uh, obscene messages on the bombs. And at the same time, you get Israeli memes and media reports justifying slaughter. Or did you see the the IDF soldier standing amidst a rubble-strewn Gaza landscape holding a pride flag with the words in the name of love written across it? Yeah, I did see that. And that uh, kind of, I mean, uh, what can one even say about that? I think it's beyond homo-nationalism. It's beyond pinkwashing. Uh, it's aligning the idea of uh, gay liberation. And, you know, we've seen this, uh, you know, with other struggles. So, for example, Israel likes to harness the uh, some vague idea of Black Lives Matter, anti-racism and so on, getting black soldiers to explain why Israel has a, a sort of indigeneity in regard to Palestine that uh, global ignorant audiences don't understand, that kind of stuff. That's all, you know, happening. But what I think is going on here and what I think the national element has to do with is a modeling of desire. You know, they don't expect to persuade us. It's not, um, I mean, we are the, uh, the audience only insofar as the effort is to demoralize, bewilder, and inflict pain on the supporters of Palestinians. But for the rest, particularly for the supporters of Israel, they want aggression, they want identification, they want lols, they want solidarity. Um, and that's what this is really about. It's about modeling a kind of nationalist desire. And this kind of interesting identification with Israel as a kind of secondary nationalism, as the contour and uh, structure of your own nationalism, wherever you happen to be, which makes it pretty right wing, but also somehow still wired into some idea of liberal values. I think part of what's going on here then is that there's a fight over what nationality means in the present age. Because obviously, for many people, the idea of uh, a colonial state, um, uh, an apartheid state, is anachronistic, it's intolerable. We fought decades of struggles to bring down segregation, to bring down apartheid. Um, and so a national state, insofar as one should exist, 
be one where uh, civic rights are not predicated on ethnicity, on nationality, and so on. So that's uh, a big part of the nature of this struggle, and I think that's why it uh, is so symptomatically relevant um, and cuts across a whole range of issues uh, today and has to do with our underlying democratic and uh, freedom aspirations uh, wherever we happen to be in the world. As you just argued, the nation-state is not an ideal political form to revolutionize human society, really quite to the contrary. The nation-state and nationalism have been the vehicles for colonial and imperial oppression, and they've contained post-colonial nation-states within a highly unequal capitalist world system. Marxism has not dealt with the national question very well um, historically, although it is fair to say that uh, Zerika Benner has shown us that Marx and Engels were much more attuned to the national question than has been assumed. And I think one of the problems for us is um, coming to terms with its uh, apparent autonomous power as an imaginary force, uh, as as a sort of formation of consciousness. Why has it been so decisive? The way to answer that might be to ask, why has the nation state been so resilient in the history of capitalism? Because you could uh, go down the road of the capital relations school and say, look, essentially capitalism doesn't need a national state. It would be much more rational to have a global state, you know, because capital is uh, internationalizes. It batters down all walls, Chinese walls included. Yet, for some reason, this grid of national states, which may be in part a legacy of uh, feudal uh, absolutism and uh, its sort of way of centralizing political power, but uh, for some reason, capitalism has held on to this and perpetuated it. And uh, my hunch here is that the idea of a a flat world, as uh, Tom Friedman would uh, put it, uh, the, the earth being flat, is simply untenable from the point of view of capital accumulation. In the first instance, because of the uneven uh, international development of capital, not just the resistant sort of realities of geography and geology and all the rest of it, but just the clumping nature of uh, capitals as they develop and accumulate in various places. Second of all, because of the uh, way in which capitalism is organized as a competitive struggle for expansion and survival, such that the idea of uh, all capitalists getting together in, in one big global state is just kind of unreal. You know, it, there's there's always going to be a sense of one faction of capitalists wanting to put, pull something over on others. I haven't really figured out uh, entirely what my answer to that question is ex- uh, in, in terms of the durability of the nation state for capitalism. And that's uh, quite an important question for me because I've been thinking about nationalism a lot and why we're caught in this uh, inverted teleology uh, of decline uh, and the nation state happens to be so important to it, why salvific nationalism is so powerful and why it turns out to be a bit like the red pill, a kind of antidepressant for people who... um, are uh, coping with various miseries and disasters that have accumulated over the years. Certainly the uh, idea that there is a uh, a potential congruence between people, state, territory, in other words, between um, the big other, the people who um, guarantee the social order and us, and some sort of transparent, lucid relationship so that, uh, you know, if you're a Trump voter, you could imagine that Trump feels just like you do. 
you know, he may not be the brightest guy in the world. He may not be the most moral guy in the world, but he feels like you do about the world because he says what you're what you're thinking. Um, he speaks your thoughts. And so there's this idea of a kind of transparency, uh, which is even more appealing than actual democracy. So I think that uh, the, the, the nation state offers that kind of lure. Uh, obviously, somebody has to pay for that unity. I mean, Freud had that uh, instinct when he wrote about group psychology, I think quite wrong in most of his conclusions in that, that work. But nonetheless, correct on this one point, that whenever you get these sort of uh, organizations of people around the idea of mutual love, quite often somebody has to bear, bear uh, the burden of communal hate, of neighborly hate. So, you know, that's been one of the patterns with the, the development of the nation state. Uh, in fact, that's been a consistent pattern with the development of the nation state. External and internal enemies, the people who are repressed, the people who are oppressed, and of course, um, uh, you know, the uh, control of national memory, national fantasy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the um, the nation state seems to have this power that is um, obviously not unrelated to the expression of class interests. I think Marx uh, probably in um, the uh, 18th Brumaire says something about the fact that each class regards, uh, views the nation in its own image and loves its self-image, you know. In other words, there's a kind of narcissistic feeling with regard to uh, the, the nation, even if uh, every class regards it differently. There's this illusion of unity. Uh, but then, you know, there's something else. Because of the uh, durability of the national state for capitalism, there's also the fact that even in the neoliberal era, the nation-state, nationalism was the one form of collectivity you were allowed. Everything else was destroyed. Unions, cooperatives, you know, traditions of, of, of working-class solidarity, working-class cultures, destroyed. You're on your own. Everybody's out to get you. This is what neoliberalism tells you. There's no such thing as public interest. It's all self-interest. And anybody could be the one to stick the knife in. So the, the slogan of neoliberalism may as well be, they're all out to get me. And in addition to that, nothing makes sense because we've all got to surrender ourselves to this market ontology where uh, essentially any order that emerges is purely unconscious according to uh, the rules of this emergent order that we call the economy. And therefore, we can't really rationally get to grips with the totality of society. It's all got to be fragmented. And so therefore, nothing really makes sense. And if you take those two slogans together, you basically get the subjectivity of the lone wolf murderer you get the subjectivity of um, people who feel utterly abject, but only are capable of being legends within the context of national mythology. And, you know, whether that is experienced through gaming, you know, where or, or these uh, on anon communities, which are kind of antisocial communities, where they're all massively cruel to one another, but at the same time, you can be a little legend, even if you're not very important in the rest of the world. The nation state is just offers a lot of consolations and it offers um, forms of solidarity that are otherwise prohibited. I was thinking about this in connection with uh, India and Indian nationalism, where Narendra Modi, uh, and this was a couple of months after the Gujarat pogrom in 2002, I think it was, and this was during the war on terror, so they were using a lot of the war on terror idiom um, to justify what had happened. But he spoke and he said that uh, if we can raise the self-esteem of 50 million Gujarati Indians, he meant Hindus, 
all the schemings of the Ali's, Malis, and Jamalis will come to naught. By the Ali's, Malis, and Jamalis, he meant Muslims. And, you know, frequently they would be referred to um, uh, with the um, colloquialism Mia, um, which means Mr., but it's a colloquialism for Muslim. And quite often it's uh, derogatory and related to the idea that they're foreigners, they belong to Pakistan, they're terrorists, etc., etc. Okay, so they've just had this insane outburst of violence with a, a, an extraordinary fixation on Muslim women's bodies, the violations, the rapes, the brutalizations, the mutilations of bodies that took place during that, the amount of time people spent having fun with raping people's babies in front of them and then killing them, uh, cutting people to death slowly, setting people on fire, and then in the evenings, and this is in some of the reports you can read about it, playing cricket with the skulls of the slain. What kind of happiness, what kind of satisfaction was derived from that? What kind of, uh, I mean, obviously this took some time to build up this genocidal rage um, and it was cultivated through years of, you know, there's a, um, scholars who talk about an institutionalized riot system in Indian politics where the, uh, the BJP and the far right basically instigate a, a pogrom whenever they want to get elected. You can always uh, almost predict that a year before an election, you're going to see a serious pogrom. Uh, as a mobilizing tool, but why is it a mobilizing tool? Why did it result in the BJP's vote going up uh, when it the government had been in some crisis in Gujarat? It seems that the nation state always offers um, the consolation of neighborly violence, of hate, of the witch hunt. And uh, that is a way of disposing of, and far more animating than, let's say, CBT or mindfulness, a way of disposing of the miseries. You know, the, they, they say the demons are not in your head, they're in the real world and you can kill them. So the nation state has all these um, consolations. And then on top of that, if you've got an imperialist world system organized around uh, structural inequalities um, inherited from colonialism, but by no means reducible to colonialism, that's why Israel-Palestine is such a shock, because it's the one truly settler colonial state still in existence. But uh, if you've got a system like that, then there are fantasies of global omnipotence that come with uh, the possession of a nation state. Paul Gilroy talks about this in relation to Britain. Lost fantasies of global omnipotence being consoled with ideas of um, solitary British sturdy independence. And, uh, you know, so you see a shift from global white supremacy uh, through the British Empire to defensive white nationalism through uh, the politics of Enoch Powell and his successors to up to today with Brexit and all the rest of it. So it's um, there's a lot of um, interesting ways in which the nation idea, much as the left has always had a complicated and ambiguous relationship to the nation, you know, you know, even Marx and Engels could um, see a, a use in grabbing onto nationalism where it could be potentially progressive in a given conjunctural concrete situation. Um, and certainly, you know, the Irish question, Irish nationalism, perfectly defensible response to English imperialism. Palestinian nationalism, perfectly defensible response to uh, Zionism and colonization. But you can see there that historically the nation state has offered people a version of the conservative Praxis, which is, uh, as Corey Robin puts it in his uh, marvelous book on the reactionary mind, a share in mastery. 
you don't get equality. You don't get uh, participation really in decision making. You don't get real democracy. You get a share and mastery. You get to, you know, as W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about uh, Southern whites, you know, desperately poor, but given certain courtesies and always enjoying the chance to have what he called a Roman holiday, you know, where they could go off and lynch a black person. Uh, I think that uh, the allure of nationalism and the nation state is the violence, is the cruelty, is the sadism. I don't claim that it's as simple as that. I understand that, you know, when you have people waving their flags at a football stadium, they're not thinking genocide, okay? But that's always there in the background, I think. So that's something we have to think about. But yeah, I mean, as long as capitalism depends upon a global system of nation states to organize the concrete structures of accumulation as a form of property, uh, in much the same way that as shareholding is a form of property, it probably will be the case that the nation, the national question will be vital in one way or another. Um, and there will be no way of getting around that. And so obviously we can't, as much as I, I think that the nation uh, is probably one of the most um, destructive inventions in human history. Uh, and, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, as nation states expanded almost everywhere, you can find massacres, population transfers that are actually ethnic cleansings or genocides. Um, you, you also see that um, this is the strategic terrain that you're on. You don't have a choice. The nation state is there and uh, the locus of which you've got to fight is going to be the nation state. I'm Naomi Klein and you're listening to The Dig, my go-to podcast for the most thoughtful, in-depth conversation on the left. It's an incredible place to be exposed to new ideas and new writing. And if you can, please become a sustaining supporter at Patreon. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Ireland, Colonialism, and the Unfinished Revolution by Robbie McVeigh and Bill Ralston. This groundbreaking examination of the colonial legacy and future of Ireland shows that understanding Ireland's experience must be central to grasping the history of colonization and anti-colonial politics throughout the world. Part history, part analysis, this book compellingly charts the centuries of Irish colonial history and explores possibility for the completion of the decolonization project today. As Barbara Ransby puts it, this book brilliantly analyzes the history and legacy of colonialism and resistance in Ireland and beyond. Find Ireland Colonialism and the Unfinished Revolution at haymarketbooks.org where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. And given that the nation-state's there, to what degree is nationalism or the nation-state a, a coherent thing that we can talk about as a generalizable thing throughout the globe? And to what extent is, is nationalism and the nation-state a fundamentally positional question? Because as on the one hand, the nation state is this necessary and resilient sort of container for capitalism and thus dispenser, progenitor of all sorts of violence. But on the other hand, national liberation movements from Ireland through the era of mass decolonization stretching from World War II through the 1980s through, again, to today's Palestinian national movement, these, these national liberation struggles have been pivotal for the left and often for working class struggles and not just for the people 
directly engaged in these national liberation movements, but also for for emancipatory movements elsewhere. It would be hard to overstate how through the 19th century, uh, what had previously been kind of diffuse patriotic sentiments and often quite contradictory and often bound up with a lot of skepticism and cynicism were manufactured into uh, imperial nationalism. Like, for example, Marx wasn't uh, attentive to this, um, but uh, Mike Davis talks about it in terms of uh, the dictatorship of Louis Bonaparte. One of the things that uh, emerged from that was an annual um, festival of nationalism of the French nation. And, uh, you know, this was really the, the, the original sort of prototype of modern far-right politics in as much as you had the paramilitaries, the Society of December 10th, and as much as you had a dictatorship that was a kind of, well, it was the original Bonaparte state, if you like, a state that achieves certain elevation or autonomy relative to capital, uh, various fractions of capital and so on, in as much as you have authoritarianism and what Gramsci would call passive modernization or passive revolution, sorry. If you look at what happened in England, it was much the same. You know, the the English had a strong Republican tradition and a strong anti-slavery tradition. Like the the the, the boycott of sugar that was used that was taken from slave plantations. They said we won't we won't eat your sugar because it's got blood in it. There were these big class, uh, largely proletarian movements um, and forms of consciousness that were quite threatening to uh, the Georgian establishment. And um, that got uh, converted through the pageantry of empire, uh, closely linked to the pageantry of monarchy and all the money that was flowing to the monarchy from the empire, in India especially. Uh, That got converted into a kind of, I think one would say, pseudo-democracy. What I mean by that is you, you're included. You don't get to actually make any decisions, but you're included. You're participating in a national identity, and that really matters, um, through the, uh, the pageantry of uh, supremacy, of global dominance. So the English could never really be free until they'd freed themselves from that. And how could they free themselves from that until they'd got over the idea of uh, superiority over the Irish, until... In the same way, the American working class has been inhibited not just by the wages of whiteness, um, which I vary in how I feel about that theory today. I think the wages are are, um, are a little bit skimpy today, to be frank. But um, the wages of empire are actually quite significant in a way. And uh, to the extent that even parts of the black working class, which have historically been more skeptical, have been co-opted into that. And so nationalism is to to an extent positional in the ways that you just described. And it's insofar as nationalism is predicated upon notions of superiority um, and chauvinism and empire or imperialism of one sort or another, then obviously it's, um, we don't, we can't really have a very complicated attitude to it. We have to try and destroy it. But insofar as nationalism is a defensive response and and an important organizing step on the way to uh, liberation, then we can't, uh, you know, we can't dis- disparage it entirely. The problem is that I think, as uh, Indian sort of Marxists and post-colonial theorists uh, noticed, um, this tends to be a program. You know, nationalism once it comes close to success, tends to become a program for the middle class and the new bourgeoisie. Uh, it tends to obscure the sort of dynamics of what liberation would actually mean. And uh, I think 
if you look at the history of uh, Jewish nationalism, you could say uh, in the 19th century that looked like a liberation movement of sorts if you weren't paying attention to the colonial aspect, which, of course, many people weren't. If you looked at um, the right-wing anti-colonial uh, movement in India, you know, they were already violently Islamophobic. Um, they were already violently racist. They were already sort of pro-Hitler. But they also wanted to get the British out of India. That was their nationalism. And then, of course, when you look at um, some of the uh, sort of, well, uh, let's go back to Zionism. Where does it start? It starts with Moses Hess. Why does it start with Moses Hess? Because he looks at the progressive aspects of nationalism. He looks at Mazzini. He looks at the German national struggle, which is a struggle against feudalism. It's a struggle against a tyranny um, and a struggle for a modern democratic state. Um, and he looks at those and says, if Mazzini can free Rome, then we can free Jerusalem. And that will be a step. We'll create a socialist commonwealth, and that'll be a step towards the liberation of mankind. Quite openly colonial, just as the Saint-Simonians were. I think, ultimately, the national idea, we can't just wish our way out of it. To that extent, I would adopt, I suppose, a quasi-Hegelian attitude, you know, where you, you've got to push through what is practically there. You've got to push forward. You can't wish it away, but um, you've got to use the nation state to defeat the nation state. So I think uh, liberation for the Palestinians, sure, if they were to get if they were to get a one state, let's say, the maximum demand, one state, et cetera, et cetera, would that really solve the problem for them? I mean, ultimately, would that solve uh, uh, their problems? Because they would still end up, let's say, uh, you know, they were to gain full citizenship and right of return for all refugees, they would still, I think, probably be racially oppressed. Because we're not talking about 1960s-style military defeat of Zionism, you know, uh, and all the settlers move away. That's not going to happen. And it, it would probably be quite catastrophic if it happened in that way. It would be violent, bloody, etc. No, it's more likely to be through an anti-apartheid-style struggle, which means uh, coming to some sort of uh, uh, ultimately uh, political solution and we've seen what can happen in South Africa. Basically, you know, you overcome apartheid, but you still have the racial hierarchy. So what I'm saying is it can be a stepping stone. It can be a, a, a way forward. But I think ultimately the nation state as an idea, we have to start thinking beyond that. And one of the things that I will give the cultural Zionist credit for, people like Buber and Arendt, who um, I would be very critical of for their blindness as regards what Zionism actually meant for the Palestinians, but they were very serious in their criticisms of nationalism, and they were trying to come up with alternative ways of organizing politically. Uh, what did Arendt want? She wanted a Mediterranean federation of Jewish Arab councils, you know, uh, uh, of politics based on friendship. Now, I, that's not a Marxist answer, obviously. I'm saying it's, it's an attempt to invent something, given Arendt's um, understanding that the nation state is actually in decline. Maybe she was right about that. Maybe the nation state is ultimately an untenable institution and she was just a bit premature in declaring its end. But maybe we should, in our imagination, given what climate change is going to do to us, given the uh, rise of statelessness that Arendt talked about and was made the centre of her discussion of uh, totalitarianism, because she was stateless herself for 18 years, she understands something about it. Given what's going to happen to all those refugees Maybe now is the time to start thinking about non-national ways of organizing global politics. Uh, obviously, we're very f far away from being able to institutionalize that. But 
You know, uh, uh, these things start as dreams. Dreams have an alarming propensity to come true, although rarely in the way that you would want. What we're seeing really profoundly in the U.S. and I think also in the U.K. and and likely other places is, is this extraordinary contradiction between significant portions of the general public and the political class. More more specifically in the U.S., a, a contradiction between a significant portion of the Democratic Party's voter base on the one hand and the party's elected officials in Congress and Biden on the other. And in part, it feels like Biden and others are stuck in the past in terms of their basic assumptions about their basic assumptions as to where Americans are at on Israel and Palestine. It's as though the ground is shifting beneath their feet and they don't know what to make of or or do about it. But it's also it's also like they just don't seem to care about the growing negative public reaction, even though it's now broadly seen as entirely plausible that Biden's deep complicity in this genocide could doom his reelection chances. Watching from the outside, what what do you make of this explosion at the Democratic Party base and the way it's bumping up against this resolutely, really overwhelmingly, minus the squad, the 18 calling for a ceasefire, against this otherwise uniformly and resolutely Zionist Democratic Party officialdom? And, and how does that then compare to what you're seeing in the UK and what you're seeing wherever else you're paying attention to, including including maybe Germany, whose embrace of Israel is particularly intense and weird. Yeah, it's very creepy. <laughs> really? Yes, it is. Yes. Um, from the outside, it reminds me of uh, when these governments would get elected in Europe, circa the 2010s, the early 2010s, and they would get elected on an anti-austerity basis and would immediately pivot to implementing austerity, knowing that this would destroy their electoral chances knowing that uh, they would be despised. And past occupation, you know, I mean, even after that actually uh, happened in the case of PASOK in Greece, and it was discernibly a pattern with other social democratic parties, they still did it. Well, I have a few thoughts about this. One is um, don't underestimate the class consciousness of bourgeois parties. And I mean that in terms of their consciousness of the needs of capital in general, their willingness to sacrifice um, their democratic credentials for that. But I suppose probably more important than class consciousness per se is its particular mediation through the state and uh, the the sort of structures and institutions and, I guess, congealed ideologies of the state. I think that uh, one of the things that uh, the British establishment hated about Jeremy Corbyn was his foreign policy stance. I mean, that was the thing that drove them mad, even though the things that he said were pretty mainstream as regards British public opinion. But they were just completely, he had to be portrayed as some sort of cranky, anti-British weirdo. And they tried- and, and, and anti-Semite. Yeah, and well, that's, that's another thing. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. But just to say, the attacks on the basis that he had met with Hamas leaders didn't work. People didn't care. They weren't interested. I think most people probably think, well, you know, politicians meet people. Um, like, uh, you know, you might go and meet uh, Ariel Sharon or Netanyahu. Is that better? Um, you know, that kind of thing. And also they tried to attack him on the basis of uh, associations with the IRA. And um, that was the big line in 2017. Didn't work. 
So they tried saying that Labour had become full of Trotskyites and militant and all the rest of it. That didn't work. They tried saying that Corbyn was uh, in bed with Hamas. Didn't work with the IRA. That didn't work. It did work with a certain older sort of demographic in certain sort of swing constituencies. Um, but it didn't work with the wider electorate, um, and especially with younger voters who have grown up with the Good Friday Agreement and the peace and the fact that Tony Blair shook hands with IRA leaders, for God's sake. You know, I mean, this was uh, a done thing. So they really hated him for that. For that, They eventually came after him over anti-Semitism. It was always clear that this was about his position on Britain's relationship with the state of Israel. I mean, it wasn't only about that. I think Israel is kind of an overdetermined issue, especially in British politics. So, so it's linked to all sorts of ideas that are supposed to put you outside of the mainstream. Uh, like if you're if you're not supporting Israel, then you're probably in favor of nationalizing sausages and all the rest of it. There, so there is a, a sense in which I think foreign policy is the uh, certainly in imperialist states the one thing that you can't mess with. You can talk about redistributing a little bit of wealth. You can raise taxes a little bit. You know, uh, you can have your public services if you can get away with it. If you can manage to, you know, dance around ruling class resistance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you do not touch our armies and our air force and our navy. You do not touch our foreign policy because that is the basis of the it's the, it's the entire structure of accumulation. It's the entire predicates of accumulation. The Atlantic Alliance. It's the, the Trident nuclear submarine situation in, in the UK comes to mind as well. Oh, good. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing that that issue, I mean, almost nobody in the UK wants this thing. And there was some significant resistance to renewing it, but it was pushed ahead because public opinion is not important on these matters. So I think that when it comes to the state of Israel uh, for the American government, it's been such, apart from the fact that Biden himself has defined himself as politically Zionist, feels obviously some sort of intense connection with the state of Israel and has always felt that its massacres were justified. You know, Sabra and Shatila, it was great what you did. It had to be done. If Canada, uh, you know, uh, bombed us, we would certainly go and commit some massacres there. I mean, <laughs> they're going to commit massacres in Canada. Uh, you know, I mean, this is who Biden is. But I don't know that it would be fundamentally different if somebody else was in there. I don't know if if Obama would have been different, even though Obama, I think, is, in terms of his ideas, probably much more pragmatic and much more subtle with regard to Israel-Palestine. But when he was actually in power, he did much the same stuff. But we've had decades in which the American government has spent hundreds of billions of dollars on the Israeli military, especially since 1967, obviously in which uh, it has invested in the politics of being pro-Israel, partly as a counterpoint, emerging out of the 60s and the politics of black power, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, partly as a counterpoint to all that, as a wedge, part of a broader social coalition sustaining a certain kind of hegemony. For the right, it enabled them to you know, bring a certain section of um, the Jewish middle class, the rightward moving Jewish middle class, along with Christian right, along with um, you know, various types of ethnic absolutisms being wedded together here, along with the neoliberal ruling class and parts, uh, racially motivated parts of the blue collar vote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. For the Democrats, uh, it was a way of, um, uh, you know, appearing to build a totally loyalist, imperialist policy agenda 
around some vague idea of defending a progressive, plucky little state, you know, the only democracy in the Middle East, still had that atmosphere of being a little Sparta, still had uh, some sort of labor Zionism. You know, th th there was, I think, this kind of imaginary. And I think that that's been built into American statecraft for so long now. Yeah, it's it's geopolitical and it's also economic and it's international and also domestic and affective, social, cultural, ideological. Everything, yeah. It's, it, and so so I think that Israel is a bit like austerity was in Europe. It's one of those things for which ultimately they know the, the public don't like it. And even if the public hated it, and I'm not convinced that uh, the, this will cost Biden in the way that austerity cost European Social Democratic parties, it will cost him. I mean, that's very clear. But he could still scrape through a victory even with the votes he loses here. But uh, even if he doesn't, I think he'd be quite happy to, you know, take one for the team, as it were. I think knowing that Trump would get in and basically uh, maintain the same foreign policy. Why would he maintain the same foreign policy? Because Biden maintained the same foreign policy as Trump, which uh, Trump's foreign policy was basically a version of Obama's, as recommended by the Pentagon. So that continuity, I don't think they're terribly worried if the Democrats get booted out. They could always turn around and vilify Pal Palestinian solidarity. You cost us. You ruined it. You, you and your protests, you did this. You, brought, you put Trump in power. All the liberal bile that will be coming out of the mouths of MSNBC talking heads, the celebrity pundits and so on. They can always turn to that. And then uh, when people get terrified and sick to death of Trump uh, by 2028, they hope they will be able to get back again. You know, they, they like that seesaw. In fact, it's, it's ideal for them to have a situation where you can choose between murderous liberal imperialists on the one hand and uh, far right on the other. That's how they've done it in France. That's what they uh, hope to engineer. And it means that you always basically have a choice between two pro-systemic options. They love it. So uh, I think uh, class consciousness and state consciousness are, are at the core of this. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you could probably say more about this than I can, but it does look as if there are certain ruptures with, happening within the state. I don't mean ruptures in the Palancian sense, just, you know, like there's... Um, like senior State Department officials in charge of certifying arms sales or arms transfers, weapons transfers, resigning yeah. very loudly. Congressional staffers, um, uh, members of the Biden administration. Uh, and uh, the one thing that doesn't really make sense to me, and perhaps I've misjudged him all these years, is, is Sanders' position in all this. I do not understand. I mean, extremely, extremely demoralizing. You know, on the one hand, this is not defending him at all. Still better than your median um, Democrat, but like very sure, yeah. unforgivably, frankly, like refusing to call for a ceasefire, which is the basic line that's very reasonably been drawn here. And I mean, my best guess is generational limits that have to do with his own personal history and like commitments to liberal Zionism, yeah. growing up, spending time in a kibbutz in the heyday of a liberal labor Zionism that the settler colonial project of Israel inevitably and very revealingly made impossible. But that's a lot to grapple with and why I think it's a fascinating juxtaposition of Bernie on the one hand and his profound limits and failings being revealed here in this very kind of tragic way. But then the squad coming after him, a squad that certain sort of uh, anti-identitarian sort of 
pro-Bernie leftists, a squad that has often been criticized from those quarters for being too woke, has proven themselves to be the indispensable tribune of Palestine solidarity in the heart of the U.S. empire. A hundred percent. And, you know, I think we're seeing uh, what matters now. I mean, I, you know, I would have had some criticisms of the excesses of so-called wokeness, but sure. is that really what matters today? I mean, I would rather have a woke ally who was a bit annoying on the internet and a bit supercilious and, you know, like all the rest of it, um, but was against genocide. You know, that's the red line. You're against genocide. Great. You're a comrade for now. Yeah, I I, I, I guessed that it might be something like that with Bernie Sanders. And I, I, I'm very disappointed. But at the same time, I'm not so dispirited by that because ultimately uh, his his day is finished. Um, it's just what bothers me is more that he's going to go out on such a bum note. Um, uh, such a gifted politician. And did um, when he was at his best, he did the left a lot of favors. I mean, he helped push things forward. And to be fair to him, he told APAC where to stick it when it was still difficult to do so. Um, so yeah, that's very disappointing. <laughs> uh, but I would say this uh, in terms of the UK context, uh, you know, we talked about anti-Semitism and Corbyn. The accusations of anti-Semitism, a number of th things are worth noting here. First, I was talking to James Schneider about this uh, a few years ago. Schneider was once um, Corbyn's spokesperson. And he said to me, you know, the funny thing is we kept, we had prepared for them, you know, when uh, we expected them to come after us about Israel, and they never did. And I think the reason they never did is because they knew that Jeremy would win that argument, hands down, because he knows what he's talking about, and the morality of the situation is very, very clear. Uh, so even where it was about Israel, they came after him for uh, massively, I mean, I don't even want to say exaggerated. I mean, it was just travesty. They would take every uh, instance of somebody saying something that could conceivably, given a certain lexical shift, be uh, construed as anti-Zionist in the wrong way or as being possibly anti-Semitic, depending on, you know, or, or just, you know, just made up stuff as well. Um, and they went after him over that. And it was demoralizing because uh, it was it was like the contemporary discourse, a funhouse mirror. Uh, an alternative reality. It had nothing to do with what was really happening. And it was impossible to rebut because before you have assembled the facts to rebut one lie, there's another stream of them. Even if the Labour leadership hadn't been so um, timorous in response to this, um, it would have taken a lot to scratch even, a, you know, to, to, to scratch even a dent into the sheer insanity of the accusations as they built up through 2018, 2019. And uh, the threats of a split in the Labour Party and all the rest of it were um, part of that as well. Um, but I would say this, when you've got something like this happening, when you're, I mean, uh, this is very clear now in retrospect. It uh, was probably partly clear at the time, but it was obscured by the need to uh, maintain open lines of communication with the, the mainstream, as it were a populist mainstream, but nonetheless the mainstream, that what people needed was a rallying cry. In other words, it wasn't this bureaucratic stuff of, yeah, we're dealing with anti-Semitism, we're in introducing these new measures, don't get, uh, don't, you know, don't, don't get caught up in the hysteria, etc., etc. No, what people needed was a rallying cry, so that when Jeremy Corbyn was asked about this on national television, what he needed to say was, 
no one takes this situation more seriously than us. No one takes anti-Semitism more seriously than us. But we will not be vilified and demonized by you because we're trying to change the country. And that's what's happening here. And I think to, to that, the rank and file, the grassroots would have responded positively and would have felt they had something to fight over. And we were not given that opportunity. And as a result, uh, we were led into this demoralizing cul-de-sac where eventually Jeremy Corbyn's labor absurdly could be uh, described on the front page of Jewish newspapers in this country as an existential threat to Jews. And where quite a lot of uh, Jewish people, frankly, were genuinely afraid that you know had been misled to the point that they thought if Jeremy Corbyn was elected, they'd be getting beaten up on the streets. So I think we we helped this discourse to uh, consume us by giving it time of day in on the terms that it was being put to us, rather than attacking it uh, in the in the way that it needed to be attacked. Right now, thankfully, I mean, it's I think people learned their lesson after twenty nineteen. Um, particularly when uh, Keir Starmer suspended Jeremy Corbyn uh, from the Labour Party, suspended the whip. And uh, it became clear when he started driving out Jewish socialists who were critical of the state of Israel from the Labour Party. But this genocide in Gaza and the surrounding discourses clarified things immensely. Um, I think, uh, you know, the fact that we're seeing uh, and there's always been uh, this, you know, Jewish people on the left being vilified as though they are part of um, this anti-Semitic wedge. I I think that's like what's most surreal about the anti-Semitism accusations in the U.S., not just the obvious fact that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism and that this is a cynical ploy to try to shut everyone up. It's that young left-wing Jews in the U.S. are at the forefront, the forefront of the anti-Zionist movement here and are just a substantial part of the American Left. The American left is a substan- one of the most substantially Jewish spaces, milieus, you can be in in the United States. And so these, these accusations aren't just attempting to delegitimize Palestine solidarity, though they are doing that. They're also attempting to, to obscure this intense conflict within the American Jewish community over Israel and consequently, fundamentally, what it means to be Jewish in America. I, I could. Uh, that's very visible. Um, and uh, but one thing is very clear: we were, I think, afraid of those accusations. I don't think we're afraid now. I mean, I you know, if if when we see anti-Semitism, we're going to deal with it. Make no mistake about it. If somebody gets up in a protest and starts saying some anti-Semitic shit, they might get some bruises. I mean, I'm not encouraging violence. I'm just saying it might happen. Um, but they certainly will be escorted away from the protest. But the other thing to say is we're very clear on this. The protests are the alternative to anti-Semitism. You see the anti-Semitic slogans being daubed on people's walls. You see the synagogues being firebombed. Those are the, uh, either they're they're, they're far-right, malicious far-right activity, or they're the desperate, unthinking lashing out of uh, people who would respond to any situation by being racist about it. Or various other options, but the point is they are not thought through anti-Zionist political action or even Palestine solidarity. They're not that. And that's what uh, these mass protests, uh, and maybe we should talk about the scale of these protests. Um, has, has, I mean, it's unprecedented in my lifetime. I was, uh, I've been involved in Palestine solidarity since, um, I think, 2000, 2001. And I remember there was a big pro-Palestine protest in London 2001, and we were surprised by how big it was. 
um, because, and it was organized largely by Muslim organizations, Muslim Association of Britain, Muslim Council of Britain, etc., etc. And um, the white left was scarcely there, but that was the start. It was about 80,000 people present. But, uh, you know, then we would have big protests every time Israel, you know, did something else like bombed Gaza or invaded southern Lebanon or whatever. And there would be tens of thousands of people there. And that was a shift, a significant shift. But tens of thousands of people is not what we're seeing now, which is hundreds of thousands. And um, what we've seen now is these protests coming out of nowhere almost immediately. Like the first protest, I think, was 100,000 strong. It was very big. I was on it. The subsequent protests have been hundreds of thousands. And I don't know what the size of this weekend will be. I mean, there's talk of it making it possibly, you know, the biggest ever. And maybe that will be the case. I can't say. But this has come out of nowhere. In other words, it hasn't been organized. Like the Stop the War Coalition's um, record march back in 2003, February 2003, drew 1 million approximately. Some estimates say 2 million, um, but I think that's nationwide, including all the protests in Scotland and Wales and elsewhere. But that was built over a period of a couple of years. And that was built in part with the help of the mainstream press, the Daily Mirror promoted the protest. We've seen nothing like that here. Uh, What we've seen is uh, a spontaneous movement mobilizing behind the flag of, for example, the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, um, you know, uh, Friends of Al-Aqsa, Stop the War Coalition, etc., etc. All these organizations that are actually quite small, um, you know, they don't have a huge depth in civic society. Stop the War Coalition once did, but no longer does. But they have become the flag behind which people are marching. So this is just um, like so many mass movements lately have just assembled partly through the viral properties of the internet and the sharing of information that's made this possible. But I've never seen anything like this uh, in my life. And uh, I've never seen it being so regular. It's not just the size of the protests. It's every day something new is happening. In train stations, the Sisters Uncut, which is, again, a very small activist group, innovated this uh, tactic of sitting in in a train station. Great, very visible, not totally disruptive, not so disruptive as it's going to cause ill will, but somewhat disruptive and, uh, you know, bringing the issue to the fore, um, raising consciousness and obviously getting the Home Secretary panicked enough to put pressure on the um, Assistant Chief Constable, whatever, um, in charge of uh, British Transport Police to try and prohibit these gatherings, not, not successfully. Uh, we've seen people trying to block arms going to Israel, block boats, block, uh, you know, blockading factories uh, that uh, supply arms to Israel. Um, That's happening on an almost daily basis. Um, It's amazing that there is this willingness to act at short notice and that people seem to know almost instinctively what the issue is, what to do, and that uh, they have to do something. Uh, This could have been a lot worse. I think if Israel had started this genocide... 10 years ago, might be, it might be a lot worse, but we're seeing a, a truly global movement from India to uh, Indonesia, to Argentina, Germany, uh, <laughs> even Germany, where they banned the protests in Berlin, in France, where they banned the protests, mass protests. Um, I really think this is a rupture 
um, in the proper political sense for the ruling class. It's not just that it's, um, you know, the, the standard thing where the ruling class doesn't listen to us and they do what they want. Uh, this is actually possibly a real threat to their foreign policy. This is possibly going to split open the sort of alliances that they've built up within the state and the habitual modes of organizing. Um, I don't claim it's going to happen tomorrow, but this is uh, an epical shift, I think. Richard Seymour is a London-based writer, a founding editor of Salvage magazine, and the author of The Twittering Machine, The Disenchanted Earth, and forthcoming Disaster Nationalism. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, turning from its home, where it assumes respectable forms, to the colonies, where it goes naked. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theoria Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or another such platform, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. <laughs>